You're listening to a curated podcast from the Beyond Infinity radio program broadcast live on Tuesdays from 11am from our Mornington studios in Victoria, Australia. Presented by me, Piers Cunningham. And me, John Young. Graham Hannigan's come back into the studio. He's a retired satellite telecoms expert and he's been involved in the preservation of the first ever commercial solar power station built back in 1980 at White Cliffs in Western New South Wales. Welcome back. Thanks, Piers. It's great to have you here because you've got some good news. You've stumbled across the world's first ever commercial solar power station. You've thought it, it deserved to be looked after and preserved. We spoke to you back in August 2017. So in the last six months or so, you've been involved in a process to actually get that site heritage listed. I believe. And, that's correct. And last Thursday, that's, you actually got confirmation that that's, that's, that's been correct. agreed. Yes. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was important to, was to confirm my suspicions that this was a, a heritage site of national significance and to then proceed to get it heritage listed so that we can get a grant from New South Wales government for the preservation. Hmm. The first thing we did was catalogue it last September. It was a, a fairly rough attempt because we didn't really know how the station worked, how all the bits fitted together. Fortunately, we were given the operations manual and also a report written by Professor Kenef that covered the first 10 years of operation of the station. That put all the pieces together, but cataloguing was the first step, getting an understanding of, of why it was significant. So I followed that up with a trip to Canberra this year and I visited the solar thermal group in ANU in Canberra I actually met with Professor Kenef's wife. He was the professor that was behind the whole project. Right. He passed away. His wife is still alive and she has a house full of models and bits and pieces of his you know, life's work. Hmm. So the preservation will also need to include getting all that material relocated to Whitecliffs, including a lot of stuff that ANU have had in storage for years, spare steam engines the development of the solar collectors. So the things that turned the water into steam at um, 7 megapascals, 550 degrees, superheated. Of course, they had lots of failures in the early days with these things exploding because they couldn't cope with the, the extreme temperatures. Yeah, so there's, and, the and project has grown yeah. from what it was originally. By the sound of things. And his wife was quite happy for you to, to uh, sort of cherry-pick some of this private collection that she's, she's got. She's delighted. And, and that's going to go and be part of a, a sort of interpretive yes. setup that you have. She said to me, the last thing I would want to think, this stuff's going to end up on the tip. Right. So, yep. um, yeah, good. Yeah, mm. so she's absolutely delighted. Mm. Last year, you actually said to me that you and your wife were going to go off to, I think, the Muse Museum Victoria to do a cataloguing course. We did course. that first, yes. Yeah, so that knowledge, that training, then helped you do this initial cataloguing yep. Yep. at Whitecliffs. Yep. We used an online cataloguing system called eHive, mm. which is a New Zealand uh, online catalogue, mm -hmm. and it's free up to a certain capacity. We've already filled it up. So we're going to have to do some fundraising and get some money to extend the capacity of the catalogue so we can add more detail and better photographs. Wow. Mm. So the idea is that you'll go to the site. I think you said there's, there's some containers on site containing a lot of precious stuff and then there's a roof over them which needs to be restored. You also want to improve access and allow people to sort of see more. 
Yes. I think you even yeah. want it, you want to engage the local community and some of the local kids up there too. Oh, it's essential. We're working to the borough charter. So the borough charter was written around the little town in South Australia of Borough, mm. little mining town. Mm. And also the borough charter for industrial heritage refers to the, I apologise if I get this wrong, the Nisney Targill Charter for industrial heritage. And it specifies that you've got to have the kids involved because the kids are the ones that inherit the site. You've got to have them enthusiastic and appreciating why it's significant so that they will then carry on the preservation for future generations. Mm. Very often these sites are left to the older generation and once the older generation have gone, sort of the younger generation say, well, well, we don't know anything about that, so... So this is a way of engaging yeah. them and making sure that there yeah. is a kind of relevance and understanding by mm. by the next generation. If you go to White Cliffs, which is you know the back of Beyond in, in uh, New South Wales, no, Western it's New not. South, no, not, I not have a different approach. Okay. It's not the back of uh, the middle of nowhere. Mm. It's the centre of everything. Okay, uh, it is eight hundred kilometres from Adelaide. Mm. It's a thousand kilometres from Melbourne, about eleven hundred from Canberra and Sydney, and about fourteen hundred from Brisbane. So in terms kind of equidistant of, to all, hmm. yeah, it's a centre of, and it has the one of the highest rates of insulation, which is solar energy, hmm. in Australia. So it's the perfect place for solar research. My hopes are that we can actually develop the solar industry in that portion of New South Wales by starting with the preservation of this very first solar thermal power station. Hmm. It stopped because, and we have actually covered this in the first interview, which is on the site, we'll link to it from this interview. It ran from 1980 till 2004, and then the reason it stopped operating as a, as a you know, powering local town was because it just the upkeep became too high and, and there were other yes. technologies that had sort of superseded. Yeah, it's got 14 tracking dishes that follow the sun across the sky. So that's 14 things to go wrong mm. or in fact 28 things you've got the elevation drive and the azimuth drives all mechanical operation and uh, lots of things to go wrong the, the rotary joints that transfer the steam from the solar collector back to the steam engine was developed by ANU uh, there was nothing on the market that could do it they have to be overhauled every year of course there's one for the water feed in and, then, and another one for the steam out on every dish so there's you know lots of things that can go lots wrong. of things to go wrong so by 2005 they'd realized that flat panel solar was as efficient and much cheaper so you know why would you keep a, a 25 year old station going and it's just no longer economically viable right but that doesn't mean it's got no value at all sure the type of mount that they developed for the dish i met dr peter carden who's well into his 80s who was the dish developer for the site. And the, the single post mount was very simple. All they had to do was get a post hole digger, drill a hole into the ground three metres deep, drop the post in, the mounting post for the, the dish structure, concrete it in, and then fitting over the top of that was the subframe for the, the mirror. Mm -hmm. Very, very simple. The process of building the mirrors themselves. So there's 2,300 mirrors on each of the five-metre dishes, which were windscreen glass, which had been mirrored. That turned out to be extremely effective and has lasted extremely well. 
and the ability to focus the sun's rays onto a a small area was even better than what they'd predicted. So they expected about a 400 mil spot. It was in fact 350 mil wide, uh, 50 mil better than what they had planned. The control system for the whole site is all pre programmable logic controllers. I was going to so ask you, so how, all did it, how, done, did, how did it know how to track the sun? The whole thing's all electromechanical relays, and you're looking at lots and lots of interlocks to shut the system down if there's a fault. Most importantly, to drive the dish off the sun. So if there's no more water flow, you're in looking at um, you know, melting your collector because there's no cooling effect from the water. So you, you've got to detect that and drive the dish off the sun so mm. you remove the source of heat. Right. Other things that they had to think of was if, if there's a problem with the engine, the steam pressure builds up to stop the whole thing exploding, was also to drive all the dishes off the sun and to release the steam pressure. When you think it was automatic, fully automatic, so it would acquire the sun in the morning, so the dishes at the end of the day would drive across to the east, on each dish is a little post which casts a shadow. At the base of the post, on each the top and bottom and east and west sides, little photosensitive resistor. So if one of the resistors in shadow, the dish would move in the opposite direction until the dish was in the sun. And that's the way it attracted the sun across the sky. Luckily, the sun doesn't move very fast. So initially, the dishes would be facing east, ready to pick up the sun. After 20 minutes after sunrise, the control system would, would wake up and pressurise the water lines out to all the dishes. By this stage, the dishes should have, should have been tracking the sun and the collectors would have reached the appropriate temperature. Water was fed into the collectors through a capillary tube. It's a very, very fine one millimetre capillary tube. The water was turned to steam and then fed back down through stainless steel piping through to the steam engine. If a cloud came over... Of course, the, the dishes cannot track the sun anymore because they're not getting a shadow. But the control system would say, OK, we'll just keep nudging the dishes west just with pulses every, every couple of minutes. So hopefully when the sun comes out again, they're still basically in the right position. But there was no angle encoding. The, the system didn't know where the dishes were pointing. It was more concerned about the steam pressure coming from the dishes and avoiding potential disaster that way. Mm. The other problem was if a cloud came over, this is where I'm, I'm impressed by the system that they developed of dispatchable power. They make no mention of it as dispatchable power, so they didn't have that word for it then, but we have it now. Hmm. So dispatchable power is what they've done in South Australia with the Tesla battery. You have a, a failure in the system or you have a, a sudden increase in load you need another 100 megawatts of power. It's going to take 15 minutes to turn up a new gas generator. Too long. So the Tesla battery says, there you go, there's 100 megawatts of power. It took 114 milliseconds to deliver it. That's what happened last December when the Loyang power station went down. The network needed extra power and the Tesla battery kicked in and did it. They've done the same thing in Whitecliffs. So when a cloud came over... Uh, obviously, the steam engine lost steam pressure. It was coupled to the alternator with a ratchet coupling, like your pull start on a mower. Right. Okay, so the catch ratchet 
coupling disconnects and the alternator starts to slow down. Once the tachometer attached to the alternator detects that it's slowing down, it reconfigures the field windings on the DC generator to convert it into a motor and the batteries then keep the alternator running and picks up the load within three seconds. So you needed dispatchable power to accommodate the cloud coming over and you've got it. It's there in three seconds and luckily Professor Kneft plotted all this. I have the graph to show that it was a, was a reality back in 1980. The other thing was if there was an additional load so if the Whitecliffs Hotel put a, a new big refrigerator in and turned it on and the load increased by 14 kilowatts, again, the TACO would detect the, the hertz dropping, so that's the, freak, the cycles per second, mm-hmm. would drop and reconfigure the, demo, the DC generator as a motor and the batteries would pick up the shortfall. The steam engine then took about six minutes to develop additional steam so they increase the flow of water through the feed system into the collectors, generates more steam, and then the steam engine would eventually pick up that load. Very clever, very simple. And very effective. Yeah. It provided, and what, 24 years' power to a town of 100, 150 people. Yeah. With, yeah. with the big fridge in the pub. Yeah. And I imagine there wouldn't be too many days where cloud would be an issue. I mean, they obviously had to cover that, but we are talking a, an area where there's not too much in the way of rainfall. And, and not too yeah. much in our cloud cover. No, yeah, yeah. so perfect yeah. place for a solar generator. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you've been back to ANU as you've mentioned, and you've got hold of some manuals and some, and also some the, uh, the report about reporters' gold. It's yeah, one of the stuff that's in here is just fabulous, mm. and that's what's what makes it special. Mm. That's why we need to preserve it, mm. not just for the site, not so people can look at it, but from the the understanding from the research that was done. Would was the done. report be made public? Is that something that could be put online or be, be available to interested? Y- yes. Now, it has been PDF'd, so I do have a PDF version of it, and I'm pretty sure the ANU don't have any problems, but I'll confirm that that they don't have any problems with it being published. I, I shouldn't think so. Can you give us... And I know you said off-air that, that there's quite it can get pretty technical and a bit heavy, but can you give us just some of the key points that came out of that about presumably about sort of the viability of this system the benefits of it what are the take takeaway things from that i think the thing that's most relevant is the dispatchable power mm. that philosophy of having dc storage just ready sitting there ready to pick up for any load increase or any drop in in supply in the system mm. Mm. Um, that's what struck me the development of the list of diesel into a steam engine, not so significant because there's no longer a technology that we use. It's interesting the way they did it. So they, Professor Kneff was a the son of a Broken Hill miner, so he knew that that area had high insulation, high sunlight, but he also knew that every shearing shed around had a list of diesel running it. So an agricultural mechanic could repair this thing and parts were easy to get. The diesel ran for 17 years till 97 when the station was converted to solar PV. Mm. So water-cooled PV units, photovoltaics. It was also connected to the grid. So it ran as solar thermal with steam for 17 years. The, the engine needed regular overhauls because built as a diesel, 
it wasn't capable of handling the torque that's developed by steam. So steam develops its ma maximum torque at zero revs, whereas uh, a diesel, one like that, was probably about, about 1,500 revs. Right. Yeah, so it was constantly being overhauled with and, new bearings. And did the batteries need replacement often? I don't believe so. The batteries, they used uh, Lucas 60-volt batteries, lead acid, which were produced for the Mount Isa mines. Mm -hmm. The batteries were removed back in 97 when it was decommissioned as a solar thermal plant. And I'm trying to track down just the battery casings to put back in the battery room because the moment the battery room is empty. Okay, so, so they uh, removed. Approaching organisations in Mount, Mount Isa, uh, hopefully that somewhere in a junkyard there's some battery casings with the lead's been recycled. It would have been a commodity that would have been recycled, but hopefully the casings are still there somewhere. When this process is complete and you, you've got your grant and you've, you've done the additional cataloguing work, you were talking about how through your travels you were aware of, I think at the Flinders Ranges, there was a Wi-Fi system that allowed you to go and get some information, some interpretive information via Wi-Fi and just straight onto your phone, your smart mm. device. Mm. And you're thinking of the same kind of system here and that involves getting kids involved to produce some videos. I thought that was a great idea. Wycliffe's is a very small community of about 100 people and most of them are winteries from Victoria that only go there for winter. So during the summer, the population's maybe 20. And so there isn't the, the resources there to have someone manning this uh, site to take visitors through. They've all got other jobs, <laughs> mm. mostly. Mm. And yeah, while we are in the Flinders Ranges, we went to... It's near Wilpena Pound... There's a little solar-powered Wi-Fi node that you log on to with your phone or your iPad or your tablet, and you can look at videos of the geological history of the area or the indigenous mythology attached to the area. And I thought, what a brilliant idea. It's an Australian manufacturer in Adelaide. The units only cost $1,900 and not expensive. And you can load them with whatever material you want. It can be a slideshow. It can be video. I prefer video. Part of the preservation process is to involve the kids because they're the ones that have got to inherit the site and preserve it for future generations. Mm. So get the kids involved learning about how the site works and telling the stories about how the site works so that they've got to learn it to be able to, to pass it, it on. Yep. It also means that they've got a personal connection with the site. So mm. that, that hopefully is, is what we end up doing. That's a great, I think that's it's a great certainly idea. not expensive. Yeah. yeah. You're saying there's an Adelaide company that actually makes those uh, solar-powered Wi-Fi nodes. Can I give them a plug? Of course, go. It's called Monster In My Pocket. Yeah, they do apps, they do um, security and all sorts of things. The hmm. uh, company's called MIMP. You were talking about the containers. So the, the equipment was installed in containers in ANU in Canberra and put on the back of trucks and trucked up to Whitecliffs and then installed on site. So there was the minimised amount of work to be done on site. That had a roof built over it and earth walls packed around it to try and keep the heat heat down. It's very, very hot and dry in summer. The roof collected water into, I think it's about a 30,000 litre concrete tank to supply water for the steam engine. Water was always a problem. They actually had to truck it in from Wilcannia as well. Even though it was a closed system yep. and recycled all the water, it still had sufficient losses that they had to 
occasionally truck it in from Walker Canyon. Mm. I've got a photograph of the truck coming over the old bridge at Wilcannia, the old lift bridge. There was one and a half centimetres clearance on each side. So what the limiting size of the dishes was the, the bridge at Wilcannia. Right. Interestingly enough, Engineers Australia, the Sydney Heritage Team, are really excited about this project and wanted, falling over themselves to help. The retired engineer in Sydney that I'm talking to actually built the bridge over the Darling River in Wilcannia. He also did the Darling Harbour Bridge in Sydney, and both of those are, I think the Darling Harbour is a swing bridge, whereas the Wilcannia Bridge is a lift bridge. I could be wrong. When I told him that I've got a photo of the, the truck bringing the dishes over the ridge with one and a half centimetres clearance each side, he's like, wow, I've got to see that. <laughs> I went to the Electric Vehicle Expo that was at Docklands a couple of weekends ago. Mm just to have a little stall, just to raise some interest in the solar thermal power station project. And I was overwhelmed. Hmm. Within five minutes, a guy came up to me and he said, I was a technician at ANU. I helped build this. I've got his details because all of those stories and the anecdotes and you know what went wrong and what went right are held in people's minds and memories. That's all part of the preservation process that to retell those stories. Endless people coming up saying, oh, we went there in 1983 when I was operating and it was fantastic and I was just overwhelmed with people. It took me three hours to eat lunch. <laughs> I didn't get my voice back until Tuesday. This is on the Sunday. Just a, a great experience sharing and hearing the stories that people have of this otherwise insignificant little site in an outback town. And what do you think the legacy of it is for the region? I, I said it's in the middle of nowhere. You said, no, it's in the centre of everything. Yeah. What do you think the legacy of this is, the fact that now it's going to be preserved, that you're going to engage with the younger generation so they understand why and they can explain to other kids and then potentially with the next generation beyond them, what do you think the legacy is? Is it that we should be embracing solar? Is that yes. that's the future for the for the area? Yes, mm. ab- absolutely. There's a kilowatt of energy per square meter hits this country, so especially up there, less in Victoria, of course. That's with so current technology. Kilowatt, current technology. To no, that's the energy coming from the sun. Okay. So you've got a kilowatt per square meter, hundred square meters. That's a hundred kilowatts. The actual conversion rate to usable energy is much, much less. Mm. So solar panels at the moment, flat panel PVs are about 25%. I think the new ones are getting up too. The solar thermal station was pretty good in 1980 at 22%. Of course, you get losses in the mirrors, losses in the steam system, losses in the engine, losses in the alternator. The alternator itself, I should mention, was purpose-built by a company in Sydney called Jones and Rickards. Jones and Rickards' core business was doing motor rewinds. Right. But they'd also do bespoke builds such as this one. The efficiency of the alternator was 94%. It actually meant that they could use fewer dishes because the alternator's efficiency was, was better than anything else on the market. So they saved money by having fewer dishes by using a very highly efficient alternator. Hmm. It ran perfectly for the 17 years. This is all in this report I've got here. It ran perfectly for the 17 years apart from one circuit board needing replacing shortly after installation while it was still undergoing trials. So not a bad record for an Australian-built machine. 
the DC to AC question. This was something that came up in the first interview we did last August, and you actually didn't have an answer. And I think you said to me before that you, you got that one. Yes, the batteries continued to run the alternator at night. So when the sun went down, the steam engine would stop, the, the ratchet clutch would dis- disengage. Again, the TACO would detect the alternator slowing down, reconfigure the DC generator as a motor, and that would drive the alternator to continue to supply the town. So it was completely seamless transfer of energy from the steam engine would stop and the DC motor would take over. They were 300 volt batteries, so there's five 60 volt batteries in series and around about 800 amp hours. So that's 100 amps for eight hours or 800 amps for one hour. And they'd continue to provide power to the town when the load was much less. The next morning, the sun would come up and the steam would kick in. If the battery's charge dropped below 80%, there was a diesel generator would kick in. They actually had more problems with the diesel generator than they did with the solar steam engine. So what an incredible project. Mm. We've been talking to retired satellite telecoms expert Graham Hannigan about his pet project, which is the preservation of the first ever commercial solar power station at White Cliffs in western New South Wales. What sort of time frame before you could go there and have the benefit of seeing your fully restored, catalogued and, and with the Wi-Fi explanation on your mobile phone? Yeah, look, if it all goes to plan, we'll have it done by next year. Mm. Engineers Australia are releasing a book next year of the top 100 industrial heritage sites in Australia. White Cliffs is one of them. Mm. And it would be lovely to have all of the initial preservation done for the release of that book. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Graham. Thank it's, you for a, asking me. It's a fascinating story. Thanks, Piers. Thanks for listening. And head to beyondinfinity.com.au for the best bits from the live show or to connect with us on social media. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for future shows. 